Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. And welcome back to the last segment of Inside Sources with Marty Carpenter. I'm Greg Scordis. And for our last segment, Marty, we're going to talk about Elon Musk. <laughs> Why not? Right? We almost made it two hours. Yeah, but you just can't, you just can't get <laughs> wait, through it. But wait. after acquiring Twitter, we all know that Musk announced that he would review content moderation policies that were previously enforced on the app. He reinstated many banned accounts and, and, and we, some famous banned accounts, also we know about that, and ended up laying off the majority of Twitter staff. This has provoked responses from both big tech companies and the government with Apple, which is a bit, bit bigger than Twitter, allegedly threatening to remove Twitter from their app store. This is the latest example in a long-running debate about censorship in tech and the role government plays in regulating people's online spaces. It's an interesting discussion. Like, I think we should start by establishing I'm a pro free speech person, and I think you kind of get to choose who you listen to and so on. But free speech is generally not what a lot of people tend to pigeonhole it as. And as a lawyer, I'm sure you're, I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir here and telling you uh, nothing that you don't already know. But like, to some extent, um, you know, there was pushback at Twitter because people had been banned and pushed off for various reasons. And maybe the pendulum swung too far in one way, so much so that Elon Musk bought it and tried to sort of correct that. And some would argue now that it's swinging too far the other way. Apple, allegedly uh, one of those saying, hey, if you don't find a way to kind of moderate what's going on here, you don't meet our qualifications to be in the App Store. That's problematic because, you know, pretty much everyone has an iPhone. <laughs> the vast majority of, of smartphones are right. uh, are Apple-based. And so if you're not in the App Store, that's really problematic. And it's problematic uh, right from the beginning because Apple's essentially decided not to advertise or pulled a lot of their advertising funds, some, uh, you know, a ton of money out of uh, supporting Twitter. So, yeah, the battle for I, – I, I think it gets pushed into being like a battle for free speech in a lot of ways. It's really just a big business battle and, you know, you got to think and play a little mental chess here. And if if one trillion-dollar company can try to hurt a another multi-billionaire how does that help them down the road in other business ventures? Well, and it's worked its way all the way up to the White House. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre fields a question about what the White House is doing about the new Twitter content policy. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. 
find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. I mean, are you concerned about Elon Musk says there's more and more uh, subscribers coming online? Are you concerned about that? And what tools do you have? Who is it at the White House that is really keeping track? So look, this is something that we're certainly uh, keeping an eye on. And uh, look, um, we, you know, we have always been very clear, and that uh, when it comes to social media platforms, it is their responsibility uh, to make sure that um, when it comes to misinformation, that they they take action. We're all keeping a close eye on this. And you kind of wonder, Marty, what the White House can actually do. I mean, you 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 said it really well at the beginning here. We're talking about First Amendment. We're talking about the ability to, to – we're talking about speech. Yeah. I mean it's it's been part of our constitution for 250 years and we're talking about regulating that. And anytime the government dips into that, they really get themselves in trouble. And with this uh, current Supreme Court, I think they're going to be hard-pressed to jump in and regulate Twitter too much. I remember being a senior in high school and going into – my journalism class that sort of inspired me personally to kind of go into a, a journalism career that's led into you know public communication and working in politics. And uh, Mr. Brown's class, I can picture exactly where I was sitting in the class, and he posed this question to the class that said, "Hey, there's a you, you you own a newspaper, and someone comes with a an advertisement or an editorial that they want you to run, and uh, it's it's anti-Semitic, for example. I think I think that was the example, and they want you to run this. What do you have to run it? And, you know, people in the class, well, yeah, you know, it's free speech. I got to run it. And, and, you know, after people kind of discussed it for a while, he said, no, look, you own a newspaper. Free speech means that guy can go start a newspaper and run it in his own stinking newspaper if he wants to. You get to control that platform. And I think that's what people kind of miss is that, you know, free speech isn't that you can, that you're entitled to say anything on anybody's platform necessarily. It's that you are free to say something without the government taking action against you, except in very certain narrow, limited situations. And I just think that's a really important context when you're talking about free speech that, you know, there is a complexity to this with social media because Twitter is just a platform where other people come and say things. So are they like a newspaper in that example that allows people to publish on there? And then do they have some uh, some responsibility for what is published on there? And do they have the same rights to keep people from publishing on it? You can go start your own Twitter And then you can tweet anything you want. That's what President Trump did, right? He went and started his own social media platform with his own set of guidelines that they can do, and then he can compete in the marketplace with every other platform. Yeah, and and, uh, speaking of that, Wayne Bruff, a tech policy director at the R Street Institute, appeared on a podcast recently to discuss the issue of big tech, big government, and censorship. Just like you said, he had this to say about whether or not big tech platforms still support free speech. There's a lot that big tech has done. They've built these platforms that everybody uses. Um, But there are questions that have to be sort of thought through carefully in terms of how you look at big tech and are they these these public squares or these are these private companies that can do what they want. And there, there's two different things I think we have to keep in mind. There's there's content moderation, which which everybody wants. They want to go to a website, see what they you know, appreciate and, and enjoy engaging in. And then there's censorship. And finding that line between the two can get blurred sometimes. Uh, and the question is, do you want the government to be the one to, to establish where that line is? And I'd be very cautious about encouraging that. 
that's the part I've never really understood is that if Twitter and its fundamental setup, I go decide who I want to follow. And following them or unfollowing them is as easy as clicking. So I should be able to moderate what's in my feed. Now, I know that that's gotten more complex because there's an algorithm that kind of feeds people into your into your timeline. But fundamentally, like you could just go back to that, right? And sen- essentially say, if I don't like what someone's saying, if someone's saying things that I think are outside of the guidelines, meaning my personal guidelines, I'm the, I'm the captain of that ship. I can hit unfollow. That's and, That seems like a pretty simple solution to me. And uh, not long ago on this very show – Today, we listened to a couple of BYU professors who talked about how these social media platforms are getting more and more defined by the far right and the far left and that the people that really have something to say are staying out of it because they don't want to expose themselves. They don't want to embarrass themselves. They don't want to do something that draws attention to them where where those on the far right or left don't care. Right. And of course – I'm oversimplifying a more complex argument, but I think the point remains that like, if you let people essentially decide what it is they w- want to see in their feed or not see in their feed, that solves a-, a lot of the issues that you would have. The complexity comes in that when certain high-profile people or you know a certain class of high-profile people use the platform, that there is an extension of what they say, right? That it. They say it, then someone retweets it, so now you've got a friend who shared it with you. But then again, you can make the decision, hey, is this friend sharing too much of the stuff that just makes me angry or that isn't valuable to me or that I find to be hateful? Then I can make that decision and moderate my own content. Uh, And that's sort of the way it was originally set up to be. And to some extent, I think that's the outcry from users, maybe casual users, in the bell curve users, as we've talked about. Just let me moderate what I can see and, (laughs) and make that choice on my own. Yeah, and, and, and Adam Thier, Senior Fellow for Tech at the R Street Institute, and we talked about them before, responded to a question about if tech platforms worked more like private companies or public squares. Well, these definitions are murky. You know, what is a public square? Is it a shopping mall? Is it, you know, whatever? You know, and we need to be careful with them because usually when you talk about public square metaphors, a lot of regulation usually follows. And so we want to try to avoid that if we can, as a regulatory label. Whether it is socially a public square, I'll let people decide that for themselves. Uh, But the problem is a lot of people in government now think it's a public square that they should be in control of. And I think a lot of the problems and a lot of frustrations that liberty-loving people are are confronting with today is they see friends being deplatformed or or large tech companies doing things at the request of uh, government officials, and they say, well, this is a big tech problem. No, it's a big government problem, right? It's the government telling technology companies to do things or else. The liberty-loving people he describes as sort of the, the, the open up the First Amendment, open up the free speech, uh, keep the government out of this, and I don't know. Well, and that analogy, public square, that's like a piece of public property where people can go and say whatever they want. That's the square right in the center of town. That's public space. Twitter is not a public space. It's owned by a private individual now, and then you get to get into a whole different set of issues. We'll have more to talk about on this, I'm sure, next time that they throw us together to fill in for Boyd or any other show we're on. Greg, it's been a lot of fun. Likewise, Marty. Sell Salt Lake City. Listen on any smart speaker and in your car at 102.7 FM. KSL News Radio, Utah's all-day companion for news. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. 
they pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.